Our scripture for today is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 9 to 20. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for him, for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom the swear or or swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their dispute, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more con convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters in the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as for forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the Lord of the Word. Well, thanks again for uh, coming on this long weekend. I trust that something in our service will speak to your heart that might encourage you. Thinking of the theme, the assurance of our hope. So we've been looking at the book of Hebrews for the last while, and today actually we'll, we'll end this short little series as we move to Lent. Lent begins next week, and then we'll, we'll circle back to Hebrews later on in the spring. So what has happened in your life in the past week? Stuff can happen, right? You can be here sitting comfortably. You go home, and something in the week happens. This week, as you probably know, a young man was shot out front of Weston Collegiate, which is just down the street, now Pine Street, long-standing collegiate in our area, 15 years old by apparently two youth who were 17. So we're talking about three young people, right? So what was going on in that story? I understand the, the young man who was shot is recovering, although serious wounds. We can be uplifting him in prayer as well as the young man who shot. Like, what's going on there, right? 
Like, what's going on in their mind? And all of a sudden, they drive up a car and shoot somebody. So something's happened, something in their heads anyway, somehow justified that action, I would imagine. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff that happens and, and has been happening throughout our city. It happens throughout our world. A lot of stuff happens in any given week. A few weeks ago, imagine the earthquake in Turkey. It happens at night, you're just in bed, you're just sleeping. And then all of a sudden there's this crazy shaking, and then buildings start to topple. I mean, nobody anticipates that, right? The people in their beds aren't expecting that tonight we're going to have an earthquake, clearly. But it happens, and you know, many, over 40,000 people have died. Um, that number is bound to go up. Miraculously, some have been saved, which is amazing. And maybe yet some will. But all of that happens in any given week. It just is. I mean, 50 million people a year die on planet Earth. 50 million a year die. Die just from natural causes or whatever. Put it all together. That's a lot of people, right? So here we are, and here you are for this week. So let's trust that something good happens for you this week. I mean, Darlene, Marjorie, we're talking about our annual meeting next week and the dreams that we have for the property that we have next door. And, and all of that is about trying to minister to kids, particularly youth, uh, going forward. So these, these programs take so long, right? Any kind of these developments take years to pull off because they're so complicated. And here we have, you know, it's a partnership. We're working as a church with a developer. It takes a long time for everybody to get sorted out and everybody to feel okay about it to push ahead. Years. So, you know, perseverance is required for all of us, right? I mean... That's the invitation. However, we know that God is a patient God. From what we understand, the universe is what? 11 billion years old, more? <laughs> if that's the case, then God is very patient. 11 billion years, all right. So 15 years for him working on this development, well, that's, that's not too much time. For us, it seems like a long time. The trailblazer of our salvation, Christ is the pioneer of our faith. That's the theme we've been working with. Uh, let's see. Now, I must turn this on. There I go. I got it on there, Dave. And now, we're rocking. Beauty. Christian growth. So, we've been talking about, and we'll hear it again, that the writer of Hebrews, who may well be a woman, Priscilla, is encouraging the folk in this church, which was primarily a Jewish church, we know some things about these settings, and is seeing that they're getting kind of worn out. They're getting kind of tired, fatigued, and they're losing their edge in their faith. And so the writer is encouraging them to kind of keep going. But with that, then she's also encouraging them to grow. 
And so we have this first statement, Christian growth is essential, and I, here I have cited Anselm, who was an early church father, uh, the patristic fathers. He writes, faith seeking understanding. So if we have faith, if we have trust in God, then Anselm was writing, based on the scriptures, well then we should want to grow. Meaning that we want to understand as much as this, as this arrangement as we can. If we're in a dialogue with God, then we want to understand God more and more and understand our relationship with him. Not to get overly distracted by the things of the world, but keep wanting to know and grow in this fundamental relationship. So if you accept the premise that God is, he is creator, and we are part of his creation, then a fundamental theme should be that we want to know him more. It just makes sense. If this whole thing comes through the hand of someone, then we will want to know whose hands this person is, God's. So Heschel used to ask the question, Abraham Heschel, a good Jewish writer, what does G-O-D mean for you? Does G-O-D just mean an idea, some abstract thought, or is G-O-D mean really a personal God who wants to know you? We believe that as Christians. So let's keep growing and not giving up. So the writer picks it up in verse 9, and I like these two verses. I'll comment on it before we really get going. Even though we speak in this way, beloved, we are confident of better things in your case. Because she's just talked about being sluggish. And she says, well, I know you really want to go deeper, so I have better thoughts for you. Things You want to understand things that belong to salvation. And then she writes, for God is not unjust. He will not overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. She's saying, good news. This personal God who knows the entire universe, knows your heart, and knows how you live and reach out in love towards other people, what you have done for him, how you have served him. And the word serving there is the word diakoneo, to serve. It's the word from which we get deacon. And so what the person, the writer, is saying is not just the deacons, this group, small group of people who serve, who deaconize, but we all are called to serve. The very same word. We are called, you are called, to be children of light and live that light. And the good news is God is aware and somehow in the balances of the life God will recognize your goodness, okay? It's not like he just doesn't see it. It's not just he's looking for bad things. He, he's not. He's looking and appreciating all that you do for him. And that's a good word. It's a good word. As you serve him in whatever way, as you serve in your families, as you are a faithful mom or dad or grandparent, whatever that might be, as you live that light, God sees that and recognizes it. One light, right? One candle overcomes the darkness. So then, that's good. Recognize the light. Recognize what is going on. So the writer begins with that. I, li I like that. I like that statement. God is not unjust. 
And we want each, of, each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end. That's our theme, the assurance of hope. So that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So that's the setup for where we're at. Do not become sluggish. We've heard that word before, chapter 2, 1, I believe. It says, do not become sluggish. It's the same word here, 511, 612. But I think it's earlier than that, too. Last week, we thought about three A's that were recognizable in the, in the early church and in the Middle Ages. And the first one, how do we become sluggish, is the point. Well, one is apathy. Apatheia. Which just means we're indifferent. We're, we're keen on what we want to be keen on, but we're indifferent about a whole lot of other stuff. And it's interesting how that goes, right? Because there can, be a, there can be an earthquake in Turkey, which there has been, and that can impact you less than the fact that you were in a fight with somebody this week, emotionally. The emotional challenge you felt this week hits you more than an earthquake that killed 40,000 people. Isn't that right? Isn't that what happens? You're in a bumper bender, right? You bang into somebody. That's more on your mind, <laughs> or my mind, than something huge. And that's part of the human condition. So we can be indifferent. Another word, enemy, we talked about that, sated. That word is more for a culture that is full. It means you are so filled up. You go to have dinner and you are so filled up that you can't even move after it. And that kind of prosperity or abundance can actually make you immobile to all kinds of needs. It's one of the reasons in the monastic tradition you hardly eat anything. I've done a number of 10-day retreats, spiritual retreats, and they don't want you to eat a lot because they figure if you eat a whole lot, you won't be able to pray. You won't be able to meditate because you'll be so full, you won't, you'll just fall asleep. So intentionally, you have breakfast and they hardly give you anything. And then you have an early lunch and you hardly get anything. That's it for the whole day. They argue, well, you'll actually be more alert in your prayers if you have a little bit of emptiness in your stomach. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they encourage us to fast. If we fast, we'll have less. And then finally, acedia. Acedia means bored. So the reality is these, these dynamics can impact us all. We can become indifferent, we can become sated, we can become bored in terms of religious things. In terms of things, in terms of our connection with God. We can forget that there's a God altogether. We can just live our life as if there is no God. It's our choice. So we can do that. But from the writer of Hebrews, then we're becoming sluggish. Rather than that, we are to keep eating our soul food, and our soul food is Jesus. Jesus says in John 6, eat my body Drink my flesh. That's very bold language, right? That's the language of the communion table. 
and it means abide in me, stay real close to me. Well, how? Scriptures, prayer, faith, community, worship, praise, adoration, whatever it is. What are your spiritual muscles that keep you connected to God and you keep filling up that area so that your bucket doesn't grow dry but you fill it up with some water? These are not the only ways, but they are ways. Keep growing. Jesus is our soul food. And we are to do that through adversity. The early church, there was lots of adversity, right? Because the Roman Christianity was not a recognized religion. It wasn't legal. It was illegal, actually. And so the Roman government could clamp down on Christians at any time, and often they did. And so it was a challenge to be a Christian. And I've mentioned before, the besetting sin of the early church actually was apostasy. To give it up. To fall away. And by the way, the book of Hebrews talks more about falling away than any other book in the whole New Testament. The writer of Hebrews recognizes that one can fall away. In spite of your theology, that's where this person is. Why was that important? Because in the early church, people were falling away. It was just too strenuous. It was too challenging. They, they just gave up. So they did not pursue There was adversity and they gave up. Our invitation is to keep going through it and to have patience. The root of patience is pati, which means suffering. When we are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen, right, there's an element of suffering to that, pati. We are called to keep pushing through it all. I came across an interesting quote this week by Daniel Barenboim. Daniel Barenboim was the conductor. He's now 80 years old. He was the conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic for a bunch of years. The Berlin Philharmonic is considered the best orchestra on the planet. All the best players in the world want to play in that orchestra. It is so amazing. And Barenboim was the conductor there. He lives in Germany, in Berlin, this is, this is now, right? This quote happened just recently. And so he lives in Germany right now, and the war between Russia and Ukraine isn't very far away. If you're living in Berlin, it's not that far away. And you are concerned about it. And you are concerned about our government now is beginning to give more and more weapons to the Ukraine. We're, we're, we're getting closer to this. The guy, the guy is a bit nervous about it all. But he says this, let's face it, we don't live in a very spiritual time nowadays. The spiritual dimension has diminished. So he's writing as an 80-year-old, he's Jewish, and he's thinking back over his life. He sees the challenges in our world, and his comment is this, we do not live in a very spiritual day. Now, you may not believe that. You may not, you may not agree with that. But that's his position. That's what he's thinking. We're on this side of the Atlantic. 
The war in the Ukraine and the Russia seems farther away for us, right? We have this amazing body of water in between us that somehow we feel separates us from it. But in reality, it's our reality too. And so if that tr statement is true in any way, well then I think it's easy to become sluggish in terms of our faith. Because we don't have a whole lot of help. You don't have a whole lot of help in terms of spiritual growth. You are on your own, man. You are in a little boat out in the middle of the ocean. It's up to you. How are you going to do that? When God made a promise to Abraham, he's now going to use, or she's going to use an example, Abraham. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you, and thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. So the example of Abraham. God made Abraham a promise. Now this can seem irrelevant, but it actually is relevant. God made Abraham a promise. The promise was that he would have a child, and through that child the, there would be a great people, Israel, that would come to pass, and we as the Christian church are related and connected to that people. God made an oath to swear by it. Now, why, why that? Because it was in a day where there weren't written contracts. Now, today, we do written contracts. And that day, you made an oath. I'm telling you, it's true. I swear, it's true. That's an oath. And so God made an oath to Abraham that, indeed, things would work out as he said. That child was not born for 25 years. So Abraham is out there in the wilderness, leave Ur of the Chaldees and go out and I'll eventually tell you where you're going. He, he didn't even know where he was going when he left. And so he's out there and for 25 years there is no child. What about the promise that you would bless and create a great people out of my son? 25 years is a long time, right? That's longer than our development. 25 years. But finally, there was indeed a child, Isaac. And through that child, the Jewish people are born, and then ultimately the Christian church is born. The promise was fulfilled in terms of what the writers communicated. God keeps his promises. In the Bible, there is something that's called the personalism of the Bible. And what that means is God creates 8 billion people on the planet right now, but he knows everybody by name. That's the personalism. Abraham, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go out. Moses, I want you to return and go to Pharaoh. Samuel, as a young boy, hears a voice when he's six years old. Samuel, Samuel. He goes and wakes up Eli. Eli doesn't like it. says, go back to bed. He hears it again. Samuel, Samuel. This goes on for a few times. And finally, Eli clues in and says, hey, God is speaking to you. So next time it happens, don't come and wake me up. 
You say, I hear you. Your child is listening right to that point. David is known by name. Esther goes on and on and on. God knows us by name. Now that is a beautiful thing. Because you and I are not just blips on a screen. We can feel like we're blips on a screen. In some nations in the world, people are just a blip. In Russia right now, it doesn't matter. Putin doesn't care. I'll send out another 100,000 soldiers and then they'll die. They'll be massacred. I don't care because I want to make a point. They're not individuals at all. He doesn't know their names. They just go out and die. God knows their name. Everybody. So God knows your name. God knows my name. We are just like Abraham. You are known. You are called. You are loved. Deeply. In the midst of the craziness of your life, we need to hold on to that truth. That God knows you, loves you. God knows the kid that was shot this week. God knows the ones who shot. He knows their names. He knows your name and my name, and he has a purpose for you and for me. That's the personalism of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Oftentimes we don't believe that. We think that nobody really cares. Nobody knows our names at all. God doesn't know me. But the scriptures say it's totally different. <laughs> knows your name, knows my name. And then all of that leads us to what we are saying is the big point here, verses 19 and 20, particularly verse 19. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain. That's all. Remember, he's writing to a Jewish church, she. And she's using language that they will get. So we have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine, the Holy of Holies. Those people knew what that meant. The Holy of Holies, the place where the high priest only goes in once a year. That place was there. The temple was standing in Jerusalem. The high priest actually went into that little area once a year, not for long, and then got out of there because it was a dangerous place to be. They got in, they got out. In fact, there's a tradition that the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, had a rope tried to his foot. Because if he fell over and had a heart attack, somehow they had to get the guy out, and you could not go into the Holy of Holies. So you drag him out by the rope. I don't know if that ever happened, but that was the tradition. <laughs> Let's hope not. Ah, somebody fell. He fell. Get the bottom, I don't know how heavy they are. Let's pull them out of there. Come on. Anyway, we have this hope, the anchor of hope. Here are some images of early, early images, first century, second century. It looks like that one to the left was drawn into a Roman. Uh, stone that was part of the pavement, possibly on the ground, or it's on the side of the building. The anchor is the hope. It's interesting because we have that image, but this is the only verse that actually says that. So the hope is the anchor. 
Apart from this verse, this imagery wouldn't happen. So the anchor is a sign of hope from God. So in, in Christian jewelry today, you'll see often necklaces and they'll have an anchor on it. And that's why. It's, it's a symbol of hope. You'll see the one on the left that's also got fish. Fish were symbols of, of being a Christian, a follower of Christ. We have fish right here, that's why. It's an imagery for that, similar on the right-hand side. So the idea of hope in Christ has been around a long time. So that's where it begins. Now we think of this verse. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain. So you have to think through that imagery fairly carefully to get what they're really saying. Because we think of an anchor off a boat, right? Normally you throw it into the water, there's the anchor. Rob and I, a few years ago, we dove a British warship that went aground on an unmarked reef in the 1780s, a major big British warship. Grand Turk. It, had, it hit a reef that was unmarked. That's the only thing that saved that captain. It was a big brand new ship. He crashed it, but there was no marking on the charts that that reef was there. That saved him. That was the only thing. The boat went down. We dove on that boat, and there are four massive anchors. Four big anchors that would keep that huge battleship, the British Navy, standing, but now they just lay on the bottom of the ocean. That's how we think of anchors, right? Normally something like that. But not here for the writer. We've used this imagery before. This is known as the parabola of salvation. And everything above the straight line across is, above, is, is beyond time. That's in heaven. Everything that happens below is in time. And so for the writer, Christ is revealed in three places. The first part, pre-existent Christ, above the line. You can read. Hebrews 1, 1 to 5 is an amazing passage on the pre-existent Christ. And then it goes below. This is the human life of Christ. The line there, the curve, represents the anchor. So below the line is Christ's human, human life, his humanity. And then when it goes back up again, that's the ascension of Christ after the resurrection. So the anchor begins our hope pre-earth. There's already a hope for you. We're told that Christ knows you and knew you before the foundation of the earth. That's how important we are. He knows us from way back. You are a very, very special person. If you exist, you are a very, very special person. God knew about you 11 billion years ago. Wow. And he's been waiting all this time for you to show up. <laughs> for me to show up. This is your chance and my chance to be a Christian. This is your one chance. 
So let's not blow it. This is your chance. This is my chance. The anchor is now below. And then it's brought up where? Because we're told it goes behind the shrine, which means it goes into the very presence of God. So the anchor that we're holding on to is not in the bottom of the ocean. It's in heaven, behind the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God. That's what this imagery is all about. And I know that can sound fantastic. It can sound like completely irrelevant. It's so huge. But the reality is that is where our hope is. That's what this parabola of salvation is about. Our hope is all of that. So in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of money problems, health problems, whatever we have going on, that's our hope. That's the big story. That's the big narrative that we are invited to keep as part of our thinking process. Will we do that? And the text emphasizes that Jesus is our forerunner. Only time that word's used. You see that in verse 20. Jesus is our forerunner. So, you know, like, what, what does that mean? Hebrews 6, chapter 20, where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered. Jesus is the high priest who goes in behind the curtain. He's the forerunner. Why? Because you and I are invited to follow. And right now, you have access to God. You and I have access to God. Christianity is a religion of access. You can go to him at any time into the very presence of God. And that's where our anchor is. Jesus has gone before us. He's our forerunner. See what I mean? See this imagery? In the early days of shipbuilding, what would happen is the big ship would come in and then they, they could only go so far in the bay. And then there would be another little boat and they would send some sailors and the sailors would have to go to the beach. And the idea was, you take the rope from the big boat and tie it around that huge rock that you see on the beach. And that rock will hold our boat secure. It becomes an anchor. So the boat is tied to that big rock, Ancora. That's the name of that rock. And that's where the word anchor comes from. Tied to that big rock. Ultimately, we design anchors that go in the water. But initially, it was that. And that's what we have here. That rope goes up to that big rock in heaven behind the Holy of Holies. And so the good news is you and I can go to that rock, go to God, go to Abba, whenever the heck we want, if we will do it. So we have a promise of hope, as we conclude, from God in Jesus, our anchor. You can take advantage of that if you want. I can take advantage of that. We can open up to that life within there's not just an external space, there's an in space that you and I are invited to explore. We have a promise. So will we live in light of that awareness? Will we go to Jesus individually and as a community and then live that light to others? Will we do that? 
Rebecca was filming on, on Friday here for this doc that we have coming up, all right? And so they wanted to talk to me a little bit. And it, who knows what footage, everything goes, right? It'll all be edited out anyway. And I'm saying, that's just too many words, Rebecca, there's too many words. She said, no, keep talking, keep talking. What would you say are the key themes, she says to me. And so I say, well, one, I think, praise and adoration. We want to keep praising God. Why? Because we are grateful. You can only be healthy if you are grateful. You cannot be emotionally, psychologically healthy if you cannot be grateful. If you live your life as a victim all the time, danger signs. Give praise to God. Be grateful, number one. Two, I said, explore your in-space. That means go deeper inside. Silent solitude. Explore all that room in there. Apparently, in terms of all the species on the entire planet, the human body is right in the middle, 50%. We have 50% of the universe way bigger than us, and we have 50% of the universe smaller than us. The human is right in the middle, so that means there's a lot of inscape there. Let's explore it. And then thirdly, we are called to live in love, to be a light, to be Jesus to others. Those three points, that's what I was saying. What do you think it's about? Well, I think those are important points. To be loving. Where there is no love, put love, and you will find love. Where there is no love, put love, and you will find love. Young guy is shot, two guys shoot. If you could put them all in the same room, where there is no love, put love, and you will find love. Ultimately, each of those individuals carries a seed of love. They may not know it yet, but it's there. The guys who shot, it's still, it's there. What they have to go through to find that themselves it could be years, but it's there. And our job is to be that light to others, to reveal that light. And a lot of times it's, it's pretty, pretty lost in there. And they've got to find it, and we want to help them find it in Jesus. Where there is no love, put love, you will find love.